Hi there, I'm Jay Comfrey, and you're listening to High Performance on the High Performance app. This is the award-winning podcast that unlocks the minds of some of the most fascinating people on the planet. Alongside Professor Damien Hughes, we learn from the stories, successes, and struggles of our guests, allowing us all to explore, be challenged, and to grow. Here's what's coming up. Did the universe have a beginning? And we know that the universe was very hot and dense 13.8 billion years ago. We, we, that's good. We call that the Big Bang. But whether that was a beginning in time, whether the universe existed in some form before that, what it means to talk about the beginning of time, we don't even know what time is. If a big UFO came now, we walk outside and over Westminster, there's a spaceship hovering. I wouldn't be the least bit surprised. The big problem at the moment is how to get along as a global society in a world where we have the means to destroy ourselves. How can humanity justify our existence when faced with the power and infinite scale of nature? Well, here we go then. Physicist Brian Cox joins us on the podcast today. He is a man who's on the TV, on the radio, he's in theatres right across the world. But this is different. This is Brian talking and covering topics you haven't heard him talk about before. Many of us have got questions, haven't we, about who we are and what our role is in this life. Well, actually, in this fascinating conversation, which focuses around high performance, you'll feel humbled when you hear Brian talking about just how small we are in the vastness of the universe. And in some ways, that insignificance can be so powerful. Maybe it's the thing that stops us from obsessing about those tiny things that derail us so often. You'll also hear Brian talk about passion, about hard work, about deep focus, about reinventing himself, and of course, his version of what high performance is. And don't forget, if you download the High Performance app right now for free using the unique access code HPAPP, then you can hear an extended version of this conversation. But let's do it. Let's get you closer to your own version of high performance as we hear from Professor Brian Cox. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Brian, welcome to High Performance. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Nice to, to, to see you, you again after we, we talk about our history. I first met you in 2000, right? Yeah, we I worked think it would together 20-odd years ago. Yeah. Um, we always start this podcast with the question, what is high performance? I think for me, I mean, I've had three careers, really. You know, I, I started out actually music, as we'll probably talk about. Then I went into academia, which I still do, and then the television, radio, live shows. But I think... Across all of them, I think it's doing a good job, finding the way to do a good job. And, and for me, I find it's attention to detail. I found that in any, all those professions, uh, nothing is easy. It requires practice and it requires attention to detail and it requires you to also, I think, for me, take responsibility for getting it right. 
Well, let's dive into a few of those then. We'll start with the first one you mentioned, which is kind of getting good at something. There's that great phrase, isn't there? How good you're willing to be at something depends how long you're happy to be bad for. Yeah. That makes sense to you? Absolutely. And I think it's about practice, isn't it? I often say, because my exam results, I got, I did well in physics, but I got a D in maths. And it's because I didn't practice hard enough. Very few people are naturally great at something. Almost, I'm certainly not. And I suspect most people you've had on this podcast, you know, there's the odd mm. Mozart or Messi or something like that. But most people, I think, have a maybe a bit of an aptitude for something, but it's mainly about practice. And I found that with maths, definitely. Uh, I found it with music. And I found it with uh, making TV programmes as well. Now, I've heard you interviewed before, Brian, where you've said that that kind of message, I imagine, was being drummed into you by your parents, and now you're the father of a 14-year-old son. How do you get kids to understand that, that you've got to put the effort in to get good at it without having to go through that bitter experience of getting a D? <laughs> I'm not sure if, if you can. I mean, if you're lucky, your kids will find something they like doing. And actually, my son is playing guitar. So he, 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 the moment he started playing guitar, he, he's been practicing over and over again. He picks it up and he practices and he's getting good at it. And so he's, he, but he, that wasn't me. You know, I, I think, you know, most parents will say you can't force your children to be interested in something. It just doesn't work, right? Very rarely. But you can hopefully give them the encouragement when they find the thing that they're interested in. And I, and I hope then that he's learning a more general lesson, which is actually you. It, it, the, the more you practice and the more work you put in, the more enjoyable it is, the more you enjoy it, the better you get at it, the more you enjoy it. And there's a virtuous circle. And that, and that I, I really think that applies to virtually everything that we do in life. But I think you have to find it yourself. Would you tell us a little bit about how people listening to this can go and create a fertile environment where people can discover those interests and stay with it. I mean, when I was growing up, I mean, it, th there wasn't any overt pressure. I, I remember really vividly, actually, because I think my mum and dad probably thought, I mean, we went to the same school, right? Yeah. <laughs> Which is in Oldham. And uh, th they probably thought, well, I'd do okay and maybe I'd go to university. No one had been to university. They hadn't, right. but thought I'd do well and I'd probably go to university. And then when I, when I was about 15, um, 14 or 15, I discovered music. I'd always been quite interested and, and started a band with a friend of mine who lived just up the road. And they, they didn't stand in the way of that. They probably were quite nervous about it, you know, because they, they had no connection with music or in, and they just thought you know what what is this thing but they enjoyed it and they didn't first of all they didn't stand in the way and and they encouraged it and tried to sort of facilitate it i suppose and indeed when i was 18 then i joined this band and we got a record deal so i was essentially thinking it was a gap year to be honest that's how the way i'd sold it anyway in my memory i'd said you know i'll just do a year Right, and then and then I, and I'd applied to go to university, but I hadn't I hadn't actually got in to do physics because I got a D in maths, so I'd I'd got in to do something else. I think it was engineering or something, right? Which is great to do, but I'd, it wasn't exactly what I'd wanted to do. And, and then it, that turned into five years of of being a professional musician, 
And then at that point, I thought, no, actually, I want to do astronomy. I'd, I'd always just wanted to be an astronomer, really. Right. But when you go to the careers people at school and say, I want to be an astronomer, they, at that time, anyway, in the mid-1980s, they're like, no, don't be silly. Yeah. Just, you're not gonna, you can't do that. What are you talking about, astronomy? So, so that, by that point, I was lucky enough that I could go to Man the University of Manchester and say, I really want to do this. Like, that's what I want to do. And they let me in. Could you explain your process then to people? of how you go from that moment when you make a decision that you're going to change career maybe to working out how you're going to not just be okay at it, but be great at it or be successful at it. What, what do you go through? Yeah, I mean, with the caveat that you can never, I don't think you can plan to be great and successful, can you? But you no, try and... You can plan to do your best. You right? try and have a yeah. go, give it a go. And uh, with the, a good example, I think, for me was with physics. So I've been in music. So I was 23 years old, I think, when I went back to university. And of course, I was behind those people. The, mo most of the people in my year were 18, and they just mm. come through A-levels. And they'd done probably better than me in the exams initially because they'd all got better grades. But also, they were fresh, and they'd just come out of school. And I'd had five years being in a rock band. Yeah. So I realized that I had to work really hard, particularly in maths, which I didn't have a, and don't have a, nat a natural aptitude for, if indeed anyone does, right? So, I, so, so I, I think the key thing for me is I realized, and I still think it's very important, that I had to take responsibility for my own success or failure. And I say this, I teach right, at the University of Manchester, and I say it to the first years. You don't need to do an exam to know whether you understand something, actually. You know in your mm. deep down, yep. you know whether you understand something or not. And if you don't, then go and understand it. And, and, and you know, we, the lecturers, everyone, the teachers, whoever it is, we're here to help. But it probably, in my case, usually, if I don't get something, it comes from reading about three different textbooks and sitting there and thinking, and sometimes it can take a couple of days and sometimes it can take weeks and sometimes it can take months. Sometimes I never understand it, right? But it's it's going through that. For me, it's really important to take responsibility for your own, in this case, understanding something, being able to understand some bit of physics. But it could be running fast. It could be playing football well. It could be playing the keyboards well. Ultimately, I, I don't think anyone can teach you to be great. There's another interesting element to this though, isn't there, which is passion. And I remember when we worked together, you know, all those 20 odd years ago, watching you talk about the things you're now famous for talking about, thinking this guy just has such a passion for it. I'd love yeah. to get your thoughts on the importance of passion when it comes to high performance. Yeah. I mean, you're, I don't think you'll ever get good at something that you're not passionate about. And the thing that you're passionate about is, is completely unpredictable, isn't it? I think you, uh, you, you get, for some reason, I got excited about stars. And do you know why? I, no, I've, I've no idea, really. It's it just always, as far back as I can remember, I've liked space, whatever it is. Apollo program, stars, anything right about space I've liked. And that's just one of those things that must have captured my imagination when I was little. I don't remember why. When you go into the television business that, that we're in having the is it confidence what is it to just displaying your passion just saying well it's i'm not i'm not trying to be i'm not going to try to be professional i'm not going to try and break these things down and, and try and 
deliver it in any way that you would be taught to deliver things as a, as a television presenter. In that. I'm just going to say how I see it. This is what I find exciting about that. And so I'll just talk about that. That's what I've, I've always done that because I, I don't really see any other way to do it. Partly, actually, probably, because I've never seen myself i've never been interested in being a television presenter or, or seen myself as as having that as a job i've always seen myself as a physicist who was fortunate enough to get offered a few of these television programs so what's, the, to present. what's the passion there then is it sharing with other people what you know is it seeing other people get interested and excited i, I think i know you well enough to know it isn't for the social media follows and the autographs right and the upgrades in restaurants and hotels that's not what it's about is it although they're nice <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you've not denied that oh, well, I've rumbled you. <laughs> there's a lot from all them the serious answer is so i grew up one of the things i grew up watching was was one of the people was carl sagan who, who i don't know if, if anyone's old enough will remember i think carl sagan's cosmos and it was on the BBC, 13 episodes, 13 weeks. And there was very little science on television at that point. Only three channels or something, I think, at the time. Uh, but Cosmos was on. And Sagan presented astronomy. And he talked about astronomy in the solar system and the universe. But he put it in a context, the context of our civilization. And, and he, he was explicit that this way of thinking this way of interrogating nature, trying to understand the natural world, is vital for our survival as a species. It's it's central to the. It's one of the one of the necessary foundations of civilization. So it was a polemic. So I genuinely think that science has the the thought process, the things we discover. And that way of thinking about the world, acquiring reliable knowledge about the world, it's the way we do it. That's important. So I do have a, an agenda when, when I talk about science on television or, or live shows or whatever it is, because I think that it's important. I said once, actually, someone asked me once, well, why do you want to present a program on BBC One, for example, about astronomy? And I said, I think science is too important not to be part of popular culture. So I really believe that. So if, if you believe it and you get a chance, look again, you get the chance, the platform to do it, then it would be ridiculous not to try and take that. Right? But the, I do think that scientists, if they want to and get the chance, have in some sense a responsibility to talk about it. Because, you know, I mean, and there are obvious things we could talk about. One topically, actually, is Oppenheimer. So I don't know if anyone's seen the film. I think it's a masterpiece, Oppenheimer. And I was interested in Oppenheimer. I got interested in him as a character quite a long time ago because I, I discovered that he gave the BBC Wreath Lectures in 1953. And they've, they've almost been obliterated from history because they're really hard. And so we don't tend to think of it. But in those lectures, when I found them, I saw this this scientist who obviously famously played a role in developing the atomic bomb, so in delivering the means by which we might destroy ourselves as a civilization, and he obviously knew that, and it tortured him. So that what that made him do was think about how we might avoid doing that. Yep. <laughs> right. So so he started thinking about politics and society and civilization, and are there any lessons from this tremendously successful? approach to require acquiring reliable knowledge which we call science are there any lessons that we could apply in wider society 
certainly wasn't saying that scientists should run the world, right? He, he clearly decided that was a bad idea. <laughs> but uh, but and, and some of those lessons, you might call them transferable skills, which perhaps goes back to the heart of what we're talking about, uh, are important, I think. And one of them is not kidding yourself, not not deluding yourself into thinking that you understand something. Not not so it's so a really understanding that the world is very complicated. Yeah. And there are many ways of that it's difficult to understand a black hole, right? A collapsing star. But it's also difficult to understand how to run a, a society. It's really tricky. So there aren't simple answers. When I got the opportunity to talk about science in my mind that I enjoy talking about it. I think it's wonderful. I get excited about talking about these big ideas. But also in my mind, there was also the things that Offenheimer and Sagan, Richard Feynman and other of my heroes had also said, yep. which is that there should be, there is a responsibility to talk about this way of thinking and the things we've discovered. Which leads us into one of the areas that I think you're masterful at, if you, want, if you don't mind me saying, is overcoming a common trait that you see with lots of intelligent people, the curse of knowledge, that you know an awful lot, but your ability to translate that knowledge and make it accessible to seven-year-old children or to a mass audience on the BBC is is a unique skill set in itself. And I'm interested in exploring how do you go about being able to communicate these complex, difficult ideas in a way that people can understand and start to get to grips with? You know, in, in part, it's about that. We talked earlier about honesty, being honest with yourself, about how difficult it is to understand some of these concepts. So if you've been through the process, and I find this, I'm quite slow quite often. I just, I don't understand, I don't understand, I don't understand. Oh yeah, that's it. Then w- what I do in, usually is just talk about the way that I understand something. And it's quite often the way that a seven-year-old would understand something because right. because you've been, I find anyway, if, if you're honest with yourself, then if you really do understand, if you really deeply get something, you've been through that process. So you've seen how difficult it is. And it's almost always difficult, right? So so you're not going to, you're not going to wave your hands around and obfuscate and, and say, uh, when you see someone doing that and you see it at university, you know, I see it, I saw it with people who taught me, you can tell when they don't really understand something because they fall back on jargon yeah. and so wave their hands around and go, <laughs> and usually that's because they don't, they've not been through that process and they're just, they're, they're, they're sort of not tricking you, you know, but there it's probably that they're tr- tricking themselves into thinking are you that they understand. Comfortable saying, "I don't know." I don't oh, know this the is the basis of science. It's fundamental. I mean, Richard Feynman. We mentioned you know, so Feynman, Nobel Prize winning physicist, also worked on the Manhattan Project. Actually, one of the greats, a great teacher as well, and he called science a satisfactory philosophy of ignorance. Right, and he, it's a really deep point actually, because he meant that all knowledge starts from you one the individual accepting that they don't know you start with i don't know how that works i don't know why the sky is blue i don't know why the leaves are green i don't know why the universe is the way that it is you have to start from that point and then you build you try to build a reliable picture it's it's a model of the world in your mind but being a scientist of course it's about doing research 
And, and that means that you're going to the edge of knowledge always and being extremely comfortable standing on the edge of the known, the dividing line between the known and the unknown, and trying to find out a bit more. So you, you have to be delighted to not know in order to make any progress. And, so, and I think that's a skill. It's about jettisoning any fear of the unknown. And I, I think a lot of time, we get into a lot of arguments you know, as a society about things that are pretty unknowable. Well, unknowable at the moment. We don't know. So even basic things like, did the universe have a beginning? And we know that the universe was very hot and dense 13.8 billion years ago. We, we, that's good. We call that the Big Bang. But whether that was a beginning in time, whether the universe existed in some form before that, what it means to talk about the beginning of time, we don't even know what time is, right? We don't know. We've got some sense, by the way, that it might be built of smaller things, but we can leave that alone. <laughs> but, but the thing is, that it's key, isn't it? Because a lot of people talk with great confidence about, I know how the universe began. I know why the universe began. Words, the, the answer is, nobody knows. We don't know yet. And that's interesting and exciting. Yeah. We're all making it up. And I think it's really powerful. If, we, if you can sit here and say, I don't know, then that's great for everyone. Yeah. And if you think about it, so we do accept in certain professions that it's good to, good to, be, to, to know what you're doing. Like, for example, f flying a plane. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. being an airline captain. Doing an operation. A surgeon, the, the designer yeah. of a nuclear reactor. You know, there are, there are things where knowledge yeah, yeah. You know, and experience are valued. If you look at how our knowledge, and I used the term before, reliable knowledge, how that knowledge was acquired, it was acquired by people starting from the basis they didn't understand. And then the moment, this is critical in science, the moment that some new data appears, some new evidence, some new observation comes in that conflicts with your picture of the world, then you start to be interested. You start to be excited. You go, well, if I'm wrong with my picture, then I'm delighted because I've learned something. I can rule that picture out and then I can go on to a new picture. So you, you have to be delighted when you're shown to be wrong because you've learned something. And that, of course, that, that does apply. I mean, that's how we have reliable airline flights right that, that's what pilots do the, the airline industry knows this when someone that makes a mistake the mistake is is analyzed and in detail you, you're not supposed to point the finger and thing in those industries you're supposed to find out how not to do it again it's like building a bridge right you don't you, there are certain things usually engineering or like you know surgery medical procedures you say where it's all about the, the success is about acquiring knowledge about doing it better next time it's not about everybody thinking that you were right that's and, and that we should just apply that it's pretty obvious really when you think about it isn't it well it is in terms of the outcome but you've mentioned a few things there that have sort of resonated with me, Brian, that I think would be helpful just to unpick for anyone listening to this. Because we all want the best outcome we can, whether that's improved knowledge of any topic. But I'm interested in the ingredients that go into creating an environment or a culture where that can be embraced, where people don't see it as fearful to be challenged. And I'm interested is uh, what would you see are the most key ingredients to do that? I think, I mean... I think it's pretty simple. It's, it's 
it's almost rewarding people for being wrong. But you know the sense in which I mean that. It's yeah. it's saying that it is part of the process of making this better. It is for, is for you to recognize when you're wrong, find it a positive experience and learn. And and there there's some there are this is not a new thought. I mean there there are industries I know there are safety critical industries where that's absolutely in the culture. It's yep. pretty obvious. But I think what would be interesting is to move that culture into non-safety critical industries, like politics, for example. It would require a big culture change amongst politicians and voters. But the idea that goes back to Oppenheimer, the idea that if you, if you talk about policy, for, let's say something you know really important, climate policy, for example, then the, the, the question of how you... How do you reduce emissions, which we know is a problem, but how do you reduce it in a way that doesn't disadvantage a section of society that that can't shouldn't be disadvantaged and so on? It's very, very, very complicated. So therefore, it, when you put policies in place, some of them are going to be wrong. Some of them are not going to work. And and that idea that you have a culture in society that says, well, we we understand that it's impossible to to get the right policy all the time. But the positive thing, that progress comes from recognising that didn't work and then trying another one. And I think that's really important. So we need to be better at asking questions rather than answering questions. Yeah, I think, yeah, we have to be less confident in our answers <laughs> and better at asking. Let, let's take your world, for example, right? How How much do you think we don't know about What's around us? I mean, we 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 know almost we we know a lot, but then almost nothing as well simultaneously. So you know, as I said, we're it's interesting. There's a few stories the other week, for example, about the new space telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope. So this is the successor of the Hubble Space Telescope. It was designed to see farther out into the universe than ever before, and looking far out into the universe means you're looking back in time. Because, for example, the, the the most distant thing you can see is the Andromeda galaxy with the naked eye. You can just about see it on a dark night if you know where to look. You can see it with binoculars. And it's a wonderful thing to do. So I'd recommend anyone who's listening or watching, go just find it. You'll see it in the sky tonight. If it's clear, it'll be there. And what are we looking for? You'll see. It's kind of a, if you know where to look, it's a misty patch in the sky. It's actually quite big. So you can get those phone apps, which are free, most of them, Star Walk kind of things. Yeah. And you, you, you'll find it. And then if you've got a pair of binoculars, you'll search around and you'll see this misty patch. And it's wonderful because it's that's the most distant thing you can see without a telescope. And it's two million light years away, which means the light took two million years to reach your eye from that galaxy. So that means it began its journey before we had evolved on earth right we the human homo sapiens are not that old right two million years and so you're looking back in time two million years you're seeing this thing as it was before there had been the humans existed on the earth right two million years and you can see it in real time so what the Webb space telescope can do is look so far out to such distant galaxies that you're seeing the first galaxies form in the universe and that's what it was designed to do and the reason we want to do that is because we didn't understand. We don't really understand how they form. Right? So how, We're how far away is so that light? Well, that's 30, over 13 billion years of light travel time. Wow. So we're talking, and the universe is 13.8 billion years since the Big Bang, right? So it's so we, we're talking about seeing the first galaxies form in the universe and taking pictures of it. And not surprisingly, it's not quite as we expected. 
So, uh, and I saw some headlines that said, you know, crisis, crisis in physics. And it's not a crisis. That's how you do science, right? The, the reason we built this big thing and sent it out to, to, to make those observations is because we, we weren't sure yeah. that we had it right. We probably won't have it right because we, we hadn't seen it before. And there is indeed something interesting and it, it could be profound or it could be a little twiddle to our model and we're not quite sure yet. But that's how you do it. That's yeah. so it was, we were never going to be right. I mean, I don't think we'll ever have the answers by any means. I mean, there are deep questions, you know, are we alone in the universe? I mean, probably not. You'd guess there are two, two trillion galaxies in the observable universe, right? So we, you would expect not. What have you, what have you made know. of all the recent headlines about, you know, someone in the States saying he's seen evidence of alien life forms on earth, something that was collected from the bottom of the sea, those tiny ball bearings. And they say, oh, this is, this has been formed by a life form outside our our galaxy. Like. It's, it's a theory, that, isn't it? I mean, he's, the, uh, so there's a theory there. And so you can get the little things and we will analyse them and have a look. I mean, I wouldn't, I, I, it's funny because on, you mentioned social media, I think, I, you know, occasionally on social media, I'll, I'll quite often, <laughs> I'll tweet something I'll say, and, and there'll be quite a few people who disagree reasonably strongly with what I said. And one of them is, is the, the UFO thing, you know, that, I mean, there are people who really believe that there are UFOs visiting the Earth. And I always say, that it's, you know, I haven't seen any evidence of that that I think is strong evidence. It's a huge claim that there are other civilizations out there that are visiting us. But I wouldn't be surprised, in a, in, in a sense, in a strict sense, that if I said to someone the other day, you know, if, if a big UFO came now, we walk outside and over Westminster, there's a spaceship hovering. I wouldn't be in the least bit surprised because... I know that there are trillions of planets in the Milky Way galaxy alone and hundreds of billions of stars, and there's been a lot of time. And one of the great mysteries, actually, in physics is why we don't seem to see much out there, anything. We haven't, you know, there's strong, there's strong evidence of nothing out there at all at the moment. We have, we have no strong evidence of any life beyond Earth. And that's a puzzle and a paradox. It's about... With, with those claims, you don't rule them out. If someone says, well, I've got this, I found this thing at the bottom of the sea and I think it's really weird, then the correct thing to do is go, okay, we'll put it in a lab and get an electron microscope and prod it around and find out just how weird it is. And nature, Feynman again said, the thing to remember is nature does not care at all what you think. It doesn't matter who you are or how famous you are, any letters you've got before or after your name, whatever. It doesn't matter. Nature just is. So if indeed a, an alien spacecraft crashed into wherever it was that they found these things a billion years ago and left all the fragments there and we've dug them up, then that's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> but, it very. but that's it. Oh, very. That's, you know? but, it, but if it didn't, then that's also interesting because then we get a profound puzzle oh. about why, why there don't seem to be many civilizations around. Our next partner, you won't be surprised to hear, is AG1. Look, we've been working with AG1 for months and months now, and it is something that for me is a non-negotiable in my day. Uh, one scoop first thing in the morning, and I've got 75 super high quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients inside me. And I honestly believe it increases my immune system, improves my mood. I think I sleep better. I've got more energy. I've told you this so many times over the last year or so that I thought I would invite someone onto my podcast making their high performance debut to tell you what she thinks of AG1 because we take it together. 
It's my wife, Harriet. Hey, Harriet. Hello. So um, this is totally unnatural for her, but she promised me that she would give it a go because she loves it as well. So what do you think of AG1? I personally love it. I'm a mum of two small children and with you being away a lot. Um, I honestly think AG1 has been so good for me. It's the first thing I have when I wake up in the morning. It's my go-to drink and it's just a great habit that I've formed. And although it's just a small change in my day, I've seen such a huge impact on my energy levels, um, my sleep. And I think in the past year, I can't think of any times when I've been really poorly in bed. I've just been um, so healthy since starting taking it. So I'd highly recommend it. There you go. If you don't listen to me, maybe listen to my wife. And if you're interested in getting involved in AG1, if you want to take ownership of your health today, then why not give it a go? AG1 are offering you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Just go to athleticgreens.com forward slash high performance. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash high performance. Thanks, Harriet. Thank you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot of what you're doing is teaching us how to think, how to ask questions just through your own example. So how frustrated do you get if you do? That's, again, a supposition on my part of when you see people that do want to have an opinion rather than accepting that not having an opinion is also a stance it can take. Yeah. I mean, it's about, um, I mean, it's, it's about, I think, looking at the, not only the evidence, but our, the, the, our understanding, by which I mean our culture, our civilization's understanding of something, and then trying to work out. You know, sometimes you have to have an opinion. That, that's what we talked about policy earlier. So that it's difficult being a politician, to be fair to them, because someone has to make a decision. You have to do something. So you have to make decisions based on incomplete data. So you can have an opinion and say, well, this is my best guess. Let's do that. The key point is if it starts to look like that was the wrong best guess, then as I said before, you, I mean, maybe it's too much to ask people to be delighted when they're wrong, but ultimately that's what I mean. You say, well, it's good. Okay. So that's not the way to do it. Yeah, Let's yeah. try something else. And so I think that's the point. We all obviously, you can't sit there and just have no opinion about anything because then nobody, we'd still be in the cave then, yeah. wouldn't we? Because no one would have. You see, I think it. opinion is fine and, and knowledge is great. But I love the Grace and Perry quote, hold your beliefs lightly. Yeah. So you can really believe, like, and really passionately believe you think you have the answer, but hold that lightly. And if someone comes along and offers a different opinion, 
you'd be foolish to to ignore that. It, well, yeah, and on that, actually, going going back to Oppenheimer, he gave this wonderful example in his wreath lectures about how nature can help you think like that. And it was about an, an electron because he did this in the fifties, and it, so quantum mechanics was really you know, new then and really widely debated. What does it mean? We're still debating it now, right? But he said an electron. So sometimes it behaves like a point-like thing, like a grain of sand. And that's probably if I said particle to you, you think grain of sand, right? Yeah. Thing, little thing. And sometimes it behaves like that. But sometimes it behaves like this wavy extended thing that fills the space that it's in. So, and sometimes it, that's what the, a way to think about it. But he said, if, actually though, ni- neither of those is right. They're both sort of attempts to understand this very complicated thing that behaves in a very complicated way, right? So you need both pictures. So you need to be capable of holding two ideas in your head at the same time that appear contradictory. It's a wavy extended thing. It's a little point-like thing. But then he said, so it is with a society. So let's think about human society. You know, we all go to work and we we, we want to look after our family and we have a, a, a and keep a keep some of our money in those things and we're individualistic we're individuals right so we care about our individual lives but also we all care about our society and so we want to give some of our money back and pay our taxes and do things and we understand that society is important so you have the two things there you have the needs of the collective the society and the needs of the individual and of course none not neither of those he called them actually i think he called one communism because he was in the 50s and he was having problems and McCarthy was going to go after him and everything. So communism and conservatism or libertarian, you know, I mean, it's left and right, right? And of course, his point is that these are necessary but not sufficient pictures that humans and human societies are very complex. So there isn't a right way. It, communism isn't right and conservatism isn't right and liberalism isn't right. These are not right. Marxism, whatever, you list them all. They're all different necessary views trying to understand how a society works and it's actually what it, what he's saying is that centrism well we sometimes it's a nasty word centrism people don't like it they think it's a compromise we're compromising we're neither one nor the other it's not oppenheimer was saying these are all you have to hold all these ideas in your head because it's really complicated so so this idea that you're trying to run a society bearing in mind that there are lots of contradictory views apparently and contradictory <laughs> opinions and someone has one opinion someone has another opinion that's a feature yeah. of society so we're not supposed to choose we're not supposed to say you're right so you're correct and you're not correct you're supposed to say how do i get a complete picture of this incredibly complicated system and the reason i think oppenheimer thought about it, obviously was because he thought if we don't do that if we don't find a way of not compromising, but understanding that the world is very complicated. So then it's not only a single country, it's all the different countries with different cultures and different political histories and different views. If we don't find a way of stopping arguing and trying to find the way to make that work, I've just given everyone the means to destroy themselves. So I personally have delivered the atom bomb. Mm, yeah. which is now has kind of raised the stakes on these yeah. arguments you know this is the 50s it's the um, middle of the and cold, now we're talking start the cold war. about ai being the kind of modern version of that atom bomb every time i open a newspaper or read something on, t- on the internet it's like ai is going to end civilization isn't it we're having <laughs> the same conversation again all these years later yeah 
So there will be. I mean, whether that's the threat or, you know, there's obviously, there are threats from all over the place. I still think the threat is probably human stupidity. The possibility that someone will just press the button still. You know, we grew up with that. So it's yep. it's interesting, actually, if you grew up in the 70s and 80s, you grew up with the, the world was going to get destroyed by nuclear bombs. Mm. It, they're all there. They're still there. And you still have the same kinds of problems and it, obviously international tensions and that they so so i think you know for all the existential threats the big problem at the moment is how to get along as a global society in a world where we have the means to destroy ourselves so it's not just a, a fight in a pub it's, a, it's, a, it's exchanging nuclear weapons if we're not careful so what's been the biggest thing that you've changed your mind on then that for you personally that I got away from physics or uh, your professional life in it's a good question that I mean in um in I think in politics so I've been through a a long learning process for something I didn't agree with so let's say Brexit so let's be careful talking about Brexit but it's right. something I didn't agree with and uh so I've learned to try to to understand why a majority of voters voted for it. it. It's not because they're wrong, right? Even though I don't agree with it. It's like what what is it that is wanted? What why would someone come to the opinion that doing something that I think is the wrong thing to do is the right thing to do? And perhaps I'm perhaps it is the right thing to do. So what is the what is the data that might come in? that would say to me, well, actually, no, I was wrong there. I'm, 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 I'd be, again, and, and I'd be doubly delighted to be wrong on that, by the way, be, because I, I want the country to do well because I'm in it. <laughs> and it's my, this is where I grew up. So, so that, that's an example, actually, of where I am actually, although some people listen to this, if they watch me on Twitter occasionally, they'll go, or if it's called now, we'll go, we'll go, this is just not, it, it's not, I, I'm looking for, yep. for, evidence that i'm not right and there's a route to a better future through uh, uh, you know outside of the european union that would be an example and we've talked in great detail about you know holding beliefs lightly looking to push the boundaries being humbled by what is around us being okay with failure because failure is growth and i hear you talk often on these kinds of subjects because this is your area of expertise and you're amazing at it but i don't hear you very often talk about how that informs your life as a father i'd love to hear what you say to your your boy about keeping him going in the right direction or the things that you share well i i say that it is so unlikely first of all it's unlikely that you exist which is a big point and it's kind of obvious but secondly it's quite unlikely that you exist in a, in a time and in a place where you can actually, in his case, spend the time um, learning how to play guitar, if that's what you want to do. It's astonishing. And so it would be ridiculous if you just you just didn't find anything, didn't do anything, you know, just, just coasted through life, not noticing that you're fortunate. In, in, a, in a very profound sense, by the way, you're even fortunate to exist. But, and, and also, I think in, in scientific terms, actually, it seems to me that we live in this baffling, astonishing, and beautiful universe. And it seems to me that not, not making 
not making any attempt to understand it in in some way. And it might be understanding it in in different. It doesn't have to be doing mathematics and doing physics, but just notice something is is worth pursuing and being interested in. I think that's the foundation, actually. And just notice that there's something worth <laughs> worth being excited about, whatever it is. I think that's why you you do so much of what you do. You know, many people would be successful and write a book and stop, or do a bunch of TV shows and think I've done enough of that. Yet you don't stop, and you, you know, doing live experiences for people. I know it's something that you're really passionate about. I wonder whether it's that's re- if we talk about you know we mentioned passion. I wonder whether for you it really is just igniting fires inside people to go and explore. Yeah, and also me actually. So I like learning curves, which we haven't really talked about. Actually. So I like um, like I, I'm doing sorry about live shows. So I've done these big live shows kind of on my own with my friend Robin Inson, uh, who's a comedian. And But now I'm doing some live shows with a symphony orchestra. Uh, we did it at Sydney, wow. at Sydney Opera House in December. And uh, it came up, the opportunity. And, and there's a great conductor, actually, Ben Northey, who's a conductor in, in Australia and New Zealand. And he had said to me, there's this music. It's Strauss. So, so the everyone knows the start of 2001. That thing, the start. Well, that's part of a 20-odd minute piece of music. And no one ever listens to the rest of it. But the music is based on a book by Nietzsche. And Nietzsche's book is about, the way Ben said it to me, is, is how can humanity justify our existence when faced with the power an infinite scale of nature. How can we justify it? And uh, so this piece of music is an exploration of that thought. It was written just at the turn of the 20th century, 100 years ago or more. And, but it's an exploration of that idea, but musically based on this philosophy by work by Nietzsche, famous book. And, and so I thought the, the challenge of taking that music and weaving in a narrative of cosmology and astronomy and what we know about the size and scale of the universe, which Nietzsche and Strauss didn't know, they, they wrote this. It's astonishing. It's, we're talking about, the 20, let's say, 1900, that, that sort of area just before, that we didn't even know there were any galaxies beyond our own. We didn't know that till the 1920s. It's unbelievable. So the, the context has changed completely in what we know about the size and scale of the universe. So there's something more to be said. There's a dialogue between those ideas and that music and the things we know today and the latest images of the universe. Something will come out of it. There's something interesting that will happen. It's really exciting. Well, let's, let's so, dive so that's into what this, I'm excited about. this learning curve thing then. So someone says to you, look at this amazing piece of music, have a listen to it. How involved do you get helping to turn that into an event for thousands of people at the Sydney Opera House. What's the process then, for you? Well, so then I I, I sit there and, I, and I, I sit and I listen to it again and again and again. And it's another thing, actually, we could talk about, have patience. So don't think, oh, no, I've sat here and I've listened to it twice and I don't know what, I don't know what yep. to do. So I'm just confused. So let's not do that. I just keep going. And at some point, then something occurs to me and I say, actually, that this image that the, the James Webb Space Telescope took of a stellar nursery, for example, the stars being born. And if you put it against that bit of music, then it kind of says something else. It says something about things being born and the life cycle of stars. And that's a bit like the life cycle of a human. And, and you can start to make connections. And, and that, that's what I want out of that collaboration. I want there to be something that emerges that wasn't 
really obvious in the music and wasn't obvious in the science. But somewhere in a conversation between those different art forms, may, something may occur, which will be interesting. And it's and then you have to have patience to to say, oh, I'm not going to rush this. I'm just going to find it. And the one thing I get impatient about, actually, is when when I have to do other stuff. If I get really into something, I don't want to do anything else. So I just suddenly it's boring. The other thing's boring now because I want to. I just want to sit there with Strauss and Nietzsche and the Hubble Space Telescope and come up with something. That's what I'm now interested in. That so I'm not really. Yeah. I can't be bothered doing the other stuff. For me, the lesson is it's about being confident that if you keep at it, so it goes back to what we said earlier. Really, you keep at it, and that can be in, when you need some creative spark. Yeah. If you keep going, it'll come. Right. So at some point, you'll you'll have the idea. Yeah. But let's explore that topic of patience, because we do live in a world of super fast speeds, quick opinions, you know, instant access to whatever we want. So the idea of sometimes accepting that it's going to be slower than we want it to be, or we have to be comfortable with the discomfort of not knowing. What have you learned about patience that you could share with us? Well, that you can't, there's no magic formula to, um, to having an idea or indeed being good at something, as we spoke about earlier, there isn't a magic formula. It is time. And I think quite often you, you have to let your head become filled with ideas and then just trust that at some point it'll, something will come out of it. So I, I think, and, then, and I'm well aware, by the way, we talked about luck earlier, also having the time to be patient is, luxur- is a luxury. Can I ask you about doubt? Because yeah. we we did a, a UK tour and it was racked with doubt for the two of us. Would people come? Would people like it? Would we mess up our words? Would there be value in it? Would people laugh at us? Would they ask questions we can actually answer during the Q&A part of the show? Yeah. Like, what's your relationship with doubt? Because a good example is the Sydney Opera House and some amazing music. I'd immediately be thinking, am I worthy? Am I going to deliver? How do yeah, you it, well, the first thing to say is that it goes back to what we said earlier about being not tricking yourself. So only I will know whether when I walk out onto the stage, I'm satisfied with what I've come up with, what I'm going to say. Yeah. Uh, only I will know if those images and the things that I've done, they're going to be on the big screens, uh, uh, the right images, and it's it's up to me. So I take responsibility. So by the time I walk out on the stage, I will have made sure that I am happy with what I'm going to do. And that, that's, that's important, I think. But also, the, again, Feynman, I remember this great quote at the end of it. He, he wrote a brilliant essay called The Value of Science, which I recommend to everyone. It's about three pages. It's online. And at the end, there's a, there's a quote where he says, what we have to learn is how doubt is not to be feared, but welcomed and discussed. Right? So, so doubt is not to be feared but welcomed and discussed, which I think is profoundly important, actually. How do you do that? By, I think, as I said, accepting that clearly you, you, everybody is taking risks all the time. But as long as, if you're happy that you've done everything you can and you're happy with where you've got to, then walking out onto a stage shouldn't be, a, shouldn't be an issue. If you think there's nothing more I can do here, <laughs> right i've done it i think this is what i want to say i know what i want to say and then and then you're right if, if people don't get it then what you should do is learn <laughs> okay and i'm always i don't know about your live shows but i i'm always learning you always do something mm. in it one night and it just doesn't work 
And what's your yeah. attention to detail like on these shows? How involved are you in the various elements? Oh, completely. I mean, I because because of this process, I would not, I would not be confident walking, and and I can't actually. Same with TV shows. Actually, I'm really bad at doing a, a piece to camera, where uh, on you know in the cliched world on top of the mountain, <laughs> right, with, with a helicopter shot. And I'm really bad at it if I'm trying to say something that someone else wrote for me. But what I can do is if I know what I want to say <laughs> and I say it, then then I can say it yeah. in, in with, with sufficient eloquence for it to be okay in work. You know, broadcastable, as we always say, we always say, is that broadcastable? Yeah, yeah it's all right, right, let's go to the pub. Broadcastable. So, so that's what, uh, the way that I work, I have to I have to know what I'm going to say with a point I want to make, yeah. and then I I can say it in my own way. Uh, what I can't do is is learn line. I just can't do it. I asked Patrick Stewart. Well, it's a bit name dropping, but he'd been on our Infinite Monkey Cage show. Yeah, Patrick, Sir Patrick Stewart. You know, and I asked him about Shakespeare because I was interested in this. But how do you you know King Lear or something? How do, how do you know? How are you confident that you walk out on stage? And he said. You have to learn the thing, it's, and it can be, you know, a huge Shakespearean role, and then you have to forget it. But you have to be confident that if, if you think about the way you speak now, so I'm speaking to you, I don't know what I'm going to say next, but I'm very confident that whatever it is, it's going to make sense, right? Otherwise, I just shut up. So, and that's the way. If you, you and now I'll start stuttering because if you start thinking for a moment, you could do it at home now. If you, next time you have a conversation try and remember what you're going to say next. And it, the whole thing collapses. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and he said, so it's with acting. If, if you say a line and then go, right, what's the next line? Then it will all fall to bits. And so you have to be confident that the line will come. And I thought that's an incredible, that's confidence, isn't it? But yeah. What a skill. But it's also practice. Yeah. Obviously, that's his job. And that's the way that he does it. It's actually interesting when I have direct, because they'll sometimes go, that's great, but you could you just say it again with this different, arrangement of words and i was so like no i can't I, it'll just it's not i'm not being yeah. difficult i just i, I can't because then i've got to think about it and then it'll fall to bits i'm not i can't do that i'm not good enough at that as a scientist that's always open to the possibility of new information new evidence challenging your view how do you get comfortable with just being good enough like where you leave you leave something and just walk away you're not constantly trying to refine it so like the show that you're yeah. doing in Sydney. It's a great question that because the the other thing which we haven't talked about in in uh, let's say creative industries, writing a book or a piece of music, being in a band, writing a song, is actually finishing it. Yeah. And it's the same in, in science. It's that I, I often say to students who want to do a PhD. I think doing a PhD is wonderful. You grow intellectually and as a person hugely because you have to produce a new piece of research, but you've got to write a thesis. And that's, so you've got to stop and you've got to write this thing, which is new knowledge, a contribution to knowledge, and you've got to know when to do it and you've got to finish it. And that's the hardest bit of all. And actually in the bands I've been in, the great songwriters, Peter Cunner from D-Ream, for example, the, the band I was in, he was would say this, he, the craft, it, some of it's inspiration, right? And, and so you have a little, you, you write a great thing, things can I get better, right? You get this great thing in your head. But turning that into a four-minute pop song is the professional bit. It's the craft. So you're right that you've got to you've got to stop and produce something at some point, and that that's a judgment call. I think I, you know, we'll all know in our lives. You know that there are things where you just keep going that little project and you never 
quite do it, you never finish it. So I agree, that's a skill. You've got it's discipline that you've got. So to what's do your it. cutoff then? Like, what th do you have? It's usually that we sell the tickets for this gig. Right, okay, so <laughs> it's happening tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Is there any other methods that you use? Yeah, I, I don't like the pressure. I I like a deadline, but I don't like the pressure of the deadline. So I tend to try and overwork on it early. And I always did this actually in doing exams at university as well. I, I, I wasn't one of those persons who liked to, I didn't like to cram it all in. I, I like to be relaxed. Yeah. So I, so, so I like the deadline, a deadline in three months time. And then I will do most of the work in the first month. Actually, that's the way that I work you know what? because, because then it gets better. Then, then you get the great ideas when the pressure's off, when you've got the framework yeah. and you go, okay, right, I've got it. That, that'll work. Then it gets a lot better. We're about to do our quick fire questions. Before we do, um, one of the common traits we found on this podcast is optimism. High performers tend to be optimists. No matter what's happened today, yesterday, they think tomorrow is going to be great. Um, you know so much about the universe, and as you've admitted, you know so little about the universe <laughs> yeah. as everybody does. Where are you regarding our future? Are you optimistic? Yes. We obviously we've avoided destroying ourselves so far. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm worried about it because I'm worried that it seems to me that our the, I don't know political debate has become extremely polarized in a way that really matters, particularly in the United States actually, yeah. um, where it, it's very important that that country stays stable, and uh, so I'm worried about that, and I. And, and you see it here to an extent. And so, although actually I, you know, we seem to be handling it quite well in this country. I mean, we don't usually give credit to our political system, but it seems to be dealing with a quite an upheaval, particularly starting with, with, with the Brexit referendum and those things. It seems to be dealing with it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I'm worried and one of the reasons I'm worried, actually, I was asked to give a talk at the, the COP climate summit in Glasgow just by video, one minute. And they just, it was a little project. And they said, if you, if, if you could say anything to the world leaders there, what would you say? And I said, just very simply, that given what I know and given to a lot of people I've spoken to, it's possible that we're the only civilization in the Milky Way galaxy at the moment. Right? It's, it's worth considering that might be the case. And there are reasons we can go into about why that may be the case, but it's possible. So if it's true, imagine it's true. I think that if we're talking about the meaning, meaning of it all, as, as we talked about earlier, what does it mean to, to be a human in this universe? Well, meaning is a property of intelligence, I think. So clearly the universe means something to us. So meaning exists here. But if there's no other intelligence out there in our galaxy, and we destroy ourselves, then we might eliminate meaning in a galaxy of 400 billion stars forever. That's what we might do. So consider that, <laughs> world leaders. You have potentially a galactic size responsibility wow. to maintain meaning in a galaxy. That's why it bothers me, because I think that's true. So I think, I think what we do here will have ramifications in that sense way beyond the the shores of our own planet because the you know you look at to me a, a 
a lifeless world, a lifeless galaxy, is a meaningless galaxy. There's something really powerful on that. Like we, like we were lucky enough to interview Tim Peake, who spoke about the overview effect yeah. of that a lot of astronauts talk about being able to see the world from outside. The atmosphere yeah. gives you a sense of both how small we are, but also how magnificent life here is yeah. on the planet. You see, with the, I, I, as I said, I've, I've been lucky to meet a lot of astronauts, Apollo astronauts as well, who tended to be test pilots. You know, so they tended to be, uh, and those those guys from the sixties and seventies, and they tended to be guys at the time. The Apollo P astronauts were really um, focused on flying those things as aircraft. But yet, you're right, all of them, every single one that I've been lucky enough to meet, said the same thing. Which is the moment you're off the Earth and look at it against the blackness of space, you start to get a feeling that there's something really important here, way beyond everything else i did say once that um i thought it was when it, i don't know which prime minister i think it was boris, it was boris johnson I, I said i said i think he should be sent into space and i actually meant i didn't mean i meant he should <laughs> yeah, put him, not come bring him back as well but i think i he, i would as a taxpayer i would i would pay I gladly, a bit of my taxes went to, as soon as you became prime minister, you went up on one of those, yeah. the, even it, it, the little suborbital hop, yeah, go yeah. up and have a look. And I think it would be a very good use of money and then come back. What an amazing conversation. Thank you so much. We finished with this, the three non-negotiable behaviours that you would like you and the people around you to buy into. So uh, what Feynman said, doubt is not to be feared, but welcomed humility in your general life but also in the face of nature actually and um be absolutely delighted when you find out that you're wrong those would be my three what advice would you give to a teenage brian just starting out don't wear that check suit when you're first on top of the pops <laughs> what is your biggest weakness what is your greatest strength that's a good question isn't it um because I don't feel comfortable answering either of those questions because I haven't thought about it, really. Um, so, weakness, I mean, it probably, I mean, I do get, I, I do find it hard to make decisions, which everyone who works with me professionally, especially people on the kind of more admin side of my world, say, God, can you just make your mind up? I, I, t I do tend to especially difficult decisions i tend to push away you know i don't want to i don't want to annoy people I, I, so i don't I, you know i don't want to disappoint people so so i do have this tendency to go actually i'm not going to do that but i'm going to tell them tomorrow <laughs> i'm not going to do it and, and that's a that's a and strength i, I think it's it probably you, you mentioned optimism so I, I tend to be optimistic that um that, that there'll be there'll be something interesting to do. Yeah. You know, I'll find interesting things, things that interest me, learning, new learning curves. Uh, so I tend to be quite optimistic. And again, some people that know me say that it's a, it's a flaw because it's a, it's probably over, maybe overly optimistic, but, uh, you know, I think it's a strength. That nice. Sense of possibility. What do you think people most commonly get wrong or misunderstand about you? 
it was funny that I got asked, and I'll be, I don't want it to be identified, it was, but I was asked it once, once upon a time, there was some, a political thing that a, a government department asked me to go in and, and have a chat with them about something. And I think they expected to have this, this nice bloke off the telly who's just going to go, oh, it's great, the stars are nice, aren't they? And Robin Inns, my friend, is a great, yeah, look at that shiny light in the sky. You know, that's it. That's me, right? The, the shiny, nice, big smile. And of course, you know, I, I kind of piled in on them on something about, you know, higher education policy, whatever it was. And I had some, I had some facts, which threw them somewhat, you know, some data to look at this, look at this. And it was about, and then the, and I didn't get asked back. And they said uh, that I got this I, years later, actually, someone said to me, yeah, there was this word that went around that you're intellectually aggressive. Oh wow! <laughs> right, Brilliant. so they didn't want me in the room, you know. And, and, and so I think sometimes people think that I'm very, 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 very nice. <laughs> like I just sit <laughs> yeah. there and look at the sky and think nice thoughts. But of course, also, you know, I was trained, you know, as a, as an academic. And that's what I did, physics. And it's it's a, as we said earlier, it's it's quite a brutal profession. It's it's, it's you're trying to get to the bottom of how nature works, yeah, yeah. and so there's not a lot of room for just sort of floating around being being nice you're trying to understand stuff heavy so i think i think it takes people by surprise sometimes if if, if someone's asking me in a private setting for example for some uh, opinion on education policy or whatever it is then sometimes it takes them by surprise that i'm not quite as fluffy and nice as they thought i love that i don't believe it i think it's lovely um <laughs> we have a high performance book club we've got tens of thousands of members they love discussing books on there what i mean obviously you've you can't mention your own because that's against the rules. No. Um, but what would be the book that you would love to throw into the mix for the High Performance Book Club? Um, there's a great book. Um, I mean, there are a lot of books that recently, there's a, there's a book, by, there's a couple of books by a, a great physicist friend of mine called Sean Carroll that I really like on the origins of life, meaning of the universe itself. It's called The Big Picture. Big Picture by Sean Carroll. And it's a really great sort of wander through a lot of the things we've spoken about actually today. So I think that's a really, a very good book. Lovely. He had another great book, which is a bit, but also it's called Something Deeply Hidden. And it's one of my favorite quotes. And I say, I do it in my live show, actually. It's an Einstein quote. And as Einstein said, that if you pay attention to nature, really, and, and pay attention and keep going and try to understand something and keep pulling the intellectual threads, everything we've spoken about today, if you're if you do that and you're persistent and also lucky and fortunate, there's a chance that you can catch a glimpse of something deeply hidden, which is the deep structure of nature. But it applies across all disciplines. Something deeply hidden. That's what everyone's Beautiful. looking for. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received and why? I think it probably was during my time as an undergraduate and postgraduate when um it was don't beat yourself up if you can't understand something but don't stop just keep going go at your own pace we've talked about that a few times actually it's got your own pace and just trust that if you keep going then at some point you, you'll understand it and i think that's that's very good advice love that and the final message for the people that have listened to this conversation today which has been fascinating what would you love to leave ringing in their ears we term it your one golden rule for a high performance life i think it, it's it's persistence i think G given luck <laughs> that we've talking about spoken about where, where, if you really want to get good at something 
then be be persistent. Love it. Thank you so much. Damien. Jake. Um, I think that you look at Brian from the outside and think, this guy must have the answer to everything. The magic of that conversation was he's someone who hasn't got the answer to, well, to anything really, because he's constantly looking for new knowledge, which I think is powerful. Yeah, the humility cycle of starting by assuming that we don't know the answers and being open to new information, new evidences, new perspectives is where all great learning happens from. And I think any of us, wherever we are, whatever we do, can take that and apply it to our advantage. And I love the conversation turning around to the size and scale of what's around us. And I actually find that really grounding because it's so easy for all of us to get caught up in the tiny little minutiae of our lives and the, the sort of little things every day that can derail us. But as soon as we realise actually that we are a, a tiny pinprick in in the, the size and the scale of the universe, then... I think it puts things in perspective to a certain extent. Yeah, and like we touched on at the end with him, the overview effect is a, it's a psychological description of what many astronauts go through there. But just the ability to put your life in perspective gives what many astronauts describe as a sense of calm and a, almost a transcendence to getting caught up in the little things is as a consequence of that. Now, we might not all be lucky enough to go into space, but... We can all take that learning and try and apply it and just see that often when we give ourselves a sense of perspective, that's the best way and most effective way of overcoming any difficulties. And in terms of his broadcasting career, I mean, I love the fact that he can't share lines written by somebody else because being a broadcaster is about being authentic, right? So he is totally authentic, which is why he's been so successful as a broadcaster. But I think the other thing is we live in a world where people don't talk often enough about how hard you need to work to be at the top of your game. And he was very clear with us that he has incredible attention to detail. He looks at things really early on, gets them right, allows it to kind of fester in his brain for a while to make it even better. Like he doesn't stumble into high performance. He carefully plans and plots his way towards it. Yeah, but I'd encourage anyone listening to that to go to the start of it of being comfortable with discomfort. He's not rushing the process. He accepts that it is a process that takes time and we'll all go at our own speed and our and our own pace to get there. But you have to be comfortable with that. I really enjoyed it, mate. Thanks for your... Yeah, me too. Thanks, Thanks mate. Thank you, Brian. I really hope you enjoyed that. Don't forget, for an extended version, download the High Performance app right now. You'll hear Brian talking about even more topics. You can download the app for free from the App Store and you've got a unique access code, HP. APP will get you access. You can also watch these conversations on YouTube as well. Join the tens of millions of people who are absorbing the content there. But look, just huge thanks to you for growing and sharing this podcast among your community. Please continue to spread the learnings wherever you are in the world. Remember, there is no secret. It is all there for you. So chase world-class basics. Don't get high on your own supply. Remain humble, curious, and empathetic. And we'll see you soon.